I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. And we're still seeing it quite well through that haze. E equals MC. That all men are created About the future innovations. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Hello and welcome to Finding Your Frequency. I'm your host, Jeff Spinard. I'm your co-host, Ryan Treasure. And we have a very special guest with us today. This gentleman is Dr. Benjamin Bino Friedman. First became fascinated with stem cells as an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania. After receiving his PhD in cell and developmental biology at the University of California at Berkeley, he joined Harvard Medical School as a postdoctoral fellow where he innovated the first techniques to differentiate human stem cells into many kidneys. As a fellow and a young faculty member, Bino combined his organoids with gene editing and established three-dimensional models of kidney disease. His published work appears in top-tier journals such as Nature Materials and Stem Cell and has also received attention in popular press outlets such as GeekWire and Cairo 7 TV News. Dr. Friedman is the recipient of numerous honors including the 2018 Stem Cells Young Investigator Award. He currently leads a research group at the University of Washington in Seattle devoted to kidney regeneration and disease modeling using organoids to guide therapy development. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Finding Your Frequency, Dr. Benjamin Bino Friedman. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Uh, Friedman, Finding Your Frequency is all about the journey. It's the how, it's the why. Uh, you've been at this for, uh, at least the stem cell research, for about 15 years now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Ever since I started college, I've been doing stem cell research. There you go. So bring us back to the even the before college days. What got you into the field? Well, you know, it's funny. I think one of my inspirations in a way was watching Jurassic Park. You know, I still remember uh, how I felt when I saw the idea of dinosaurs coming to life on the screen. And I thought about it and realized that there was potential in this world to to create new types of life forms and, um, you know, see these sort of fantasies become realities through the power of biology. So that was a great inspiration for me. And then, and then you know, there was a, a, a period where we had, uh, you know, sheep being cloned for the first time. So you could see the ability of a stem cell to really grow uh, an entire clone of an animal. And that was a very inspiring uh, scientific discovery Absolutely. that went along with that movie. So I think those things kind of got together in my head and started getting me thinking about it. Yeah, I remember, uh, right, right, you know. remember that time period very clearly. Yeah, I always thought about that TV show, too. And I'm like, man, just to be able to, you know, in my head, it was always like, okay, you're taking DNA, right, from the, what was it, like a mosquito or whatever, taking DNA from the mosquito right, and then cloning right. it or something. <laughs> uh, but I guess stem cells are similar but different i guess maybe can you explain maybe the difference between that for folks so they kind of understand sure so the stem cells are going to be the seed for the organism and we all come from stem cells in other words you know there are at our very earliest stages of embryonic development we're just a ball of stem cells and from that ball the cells then undergo a process that we call differentiation, where they split into different types of cells. You know, there's going to be your heart cells, those are going to come out pretty early, blood cells, 
your brain cells, kidney cells, and they all come from an original stem cell right. um, that, that, that essentially has no specialization to it. So that's a miraculous kind of process if you think about it. Sure. You know, the, the idea in Jurassic Park, DNA that they found in a mosquito, right? DNA from a dinosaur and put it back into another cell, like an egg, essentially try to fertilize the egg with that DNA, and from that grow a dinosaur, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially they were going and creating a stem cell using DNA from another source uh, to recreate uh, the animal. And I think that kind of technology now, in a weird way, is becoming a reality as we're seeing, uh, you know, the ability to change our DNA and the ability to grow uh, organisms from stem cells, and you know, it's it's all becoming going from being science fiction into into science fact uh, in, in in a gradual way. Right, right. Now you uh, it says here, you know, that you got fascinated this uh, with, with the stem cells. Uh, when you were doing your undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, what was the what was the push, or I should say, when you started getting to, into this, what was your goal uh, when you you know enter into school uh, at a higher level to learn more about this? What's the motivation? Well, I think a real uh, turning point for me was at the you know. It, at the end of my graduate studies, my uncle, who had a kidney transplant when he was 28 years old, mm. so his original kidney that he had received from my grandmother had worn out, Ooh. and he was now without kidney function of his own, and he had to go on dialysis. And he was looking for a new kidney. And my dad was considering giving him one of his kidneys. And, you know, suddenly for me, it wasn't about, you know, making new dinosaurs anymore. Mm -hmm. It was, how can I help people like my uncle? You know, and and these are people who have real needs uh, for stem cell therapies. So that was a a, a crystallizing moment on my journey. So when it, it hit home and you were like, okay. This is this is much much more real at this point. Yeah, I think you know there's 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 only so far you can go with the sort of science fiction stuff. It, it, you know, <laughs> if, if you have if you have people in need, that's going to get you out of bed every morning, and at least for me, you know, help me feel motivated to. To, to, to go through all the effort and the challenges of actually doing this type of scientific research, right? Um, so that, that, that kind of redirected me a little bit, and, and it gave me a way to take my natural excitement and, um, you know, passion for this type of work and stem cell work and, and maybe do something uh, a little more, you know, practical uh, and helpful with it. Wow, that's pretty cool. You know, I I had always thought too, and you know, when you when you think back about like science fiction, especially, it's almost like, you know, the the writers of people who come up with these really cool science fiction stories and technology, and then as time goes by, it's almost like people are like, you know, they they see that technology that's science fiction, and it turns into the most wild and crazy inventions and ideas and technology and. Uh, all that kind of stuff. You, who would have ever thought that, you know, as you move down that road, that something somebody wrote like 20, 30, 40 years ago as something that could be possible is, is actually, you know, being researched and being used in, in, in that, in, in the, in the medical field. Now that's just, that's amazing. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that writing is a form of human imagination. Sure. Absolutely. And it, you know, we can dream and if we can dream something, you know, we can make it happen. And part of the real pleasure of my job, in a way, is kind of seeing some of these fantasy ideas trickle into realities and mm-hmm. seeing sort of how the reality, in some ways, is very similar to what we had imagined and in some ways is, is quite different. Sure. There's absolutely that crossover. Like, you, we talk about uh, Jurassic Park. 
uh, you know, we're taking the idea of stem cells and we're introducing, you know, the dinosaur era. And, you know, the, the movie's written based on facts. So, you know, it's just cool to see how things happen. Uh, you see a movie and then things happen in real life. And you're like, oh, wow, that's just like this. But, this, you know, it was based because of reality. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's a cycle. Right. You know, you have the findings in the scientific or the medical community. And then, you know, there's the thought process involved of where can this go next? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And how far can we take it? Exactly. Yeah, you think about, I'm, so I'm a big Star Trek fan, and we today happens to be Thursday, we're recording today, but, um, so the new episode of Star Trek comes out today, but no, it's like, you think about, like, you know, they have a food replicator, where it's just, it, it they say, hey, I want a cup of coffee, and it materializes a cup of coffee, but... You know, we're we're in that age now where, you know, things like 3D printing are kind of, I think, the beginning levels of, you know, that type of technology as you move through. And, you know, and I'm bringing this up for a purpose, Dr. Freeman, because you talk about, you know, the stem cells and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that in the future it'll be possible to 3D print an entire organ leveraging stem cell technology? That's a great question. Uh, I'll say it's not possible yet. I do think in the future we'll be able to 3D print structures that will be implantable into the body, right? Okay. And, and, and will be beneficial. Are those, so are those, are, are those organic generate, structures, you think? Yes, I think they'll be organic. I think they'll be made of cells. I think it's going to be most likely, in my mind, a combination of stem cells and the 3D printing type of technology. So the stem cells have some innate ability to uh, assemble into these large structures and grow, just like a a seed can grow into a plant, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, they don't do it that well outside of the body. So you need to give them some direction, and I think that's where the 3D printing is, is going to help a lot because we'll be able to, you know, give them the cues that they need to create not just sort of disorganized structures, but actually really well-organized and patterned types right. of structures like the kind that's in our body. Well, like you mentioned earlier, I guess, because a stem cell doesn't necessarily know that it needs to be a, a kidney or a, uh, you know, a lung or whatever. That's, right. that's where the structure has to need some guidance, right? Yeah, yeah. And we don't understand all of that. But, you know, having the 3D printing type of technology available maybe gives us a way to impose a bit of that pattern on the, on the growing structures and, you know, try to get them to fill like a mold of, right. of what we want to form. I mean, the kidneys are a great example, right? They're so complicated. You know, you've got a million of these tiny little filters in each of the kidneys mm-hmm. and the filters lead into this series of tubes. That's like a little maze and each little piece of the tube is doing something very distinct to precisely regulate the composition of the blood and essentially get rid of anything that's not needed or could be potentially dangerous to the body. So that's a, there's a lot of thinking that's going on in that organ. And it's a very highly designed uh, piece of equipment. So, you know, trying to get to that is going to be a challenge, but you know, we know what the kidney looks like. We know what the pieces look like and we can impose some of that structure using bioprinting. Yeah. That was going to be my question. How do you, how do you regulate that with the stem cell? How do you, how do you give it that structure? So as you're, you know, working towards, uh, you know, uh, helping out an organ or you want a stem cell to, to, to like grow into something, how, even I guess even in the body, how does that cell know what it's supposed to do? Where does it where does it get its brain at? I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the that's the million dollar question, really. And you know the entire field is really trying to crack this question, not just for the kidney, but you know for for other organs right. like the heart, the brain. You can imagine how many people are in need of organs, mm-hmm. and if we could take the stem cells from our body and get them to grow into organs that we could put into our bodies. We could solve the organ shortage. Right, right, right. And we could have, we could have organs 
for transplantation that would not be rejected by the body. Because if you recall my uncle's kidneys, you know, even though he got a very nice transplant organ from his mother, after time, his body will reject it because it recognizes that, you know, even though you're related to your mom, you're not the same person. So, you know, if we could take cells from our own bodies and somehow mold them into replacement organs, we could all live much longer. So, so these are these are really an interesting interesting question. So how far have we come uh, over the last fifteen to twenty years? Well, we've we've made some progress, is how I would look at it. Um, one of the big discuss- discoveries about twenty years ago was, for the first time, we were really able to grow the stem cells. Right, and that that in and of itself is a huge breakthrough, right? Because before then the stem cells can only be grown in the body. And, you know, essentially you could only grow human tissues inside of their natural habitat. Okay. But now it's possible to do that outside. So that was a big breakthrough. Absolutely. And, you know, just about 12 years ago, How much does that another breakthrough <laughs> where we could actually take cells from, from, from anybody and turn them into those types of stem cells, right? So now you have a way of essentially taking a, a, a what you know what we call an adult cell and reprogramming it back to the very earliest stages of development. So we have we've gotten much better at making the stem cells themselves. That's okay. awesome. Now, at the same time, we've made improvements and advances in our ability to coax the cells into becoming our organ of interest. So we're now able to make probably, you know, 50 or so different types of organ lineages from stem cells. So that wasn't really possible before. But we still have a long way to go when it comes to getting them to make something as complex and as large as, say, a human kidney. So that's where the frontier remains. That's the final frontier, Gotcha. if you want to take the Star Trek metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So what are we doing medically right now with stem cells? Well, medically right now, I would say that the key examples of a stem cell therapy are in the blood system, right? So if you have a bone marrow transplantation, that is a stem cell transplant, where you're taking stem cells out of the bone marrow and... You're putting them back in to a different person, potentially, or to the same person after changing them. And um, in that way, you can actually get the stem cells to grow new blood for right. your body. Okay. So that is the most, that's the most successful medically accepted example so, of stem cell therapy. So Dr. Freeman, let's break this down for just a second too, because um, I have a personal experience too, kind of like you did with your uncle. I have one with my uncle. Uh, my uncle has uh, COPD really bad, right? And so he walks around with an oxygen tank and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so he's like, you know, trying to figure out how he can live longer and have better lungs at work because ultimately what would end up happening down the road is he would need a lung transplant, uh, uh, for that. So uh, where we live here in the state of Arizona, whatever procedure that they wanted to do with stem cells is actually illegal here. So he flew, uh, somewhere in Canada or something like that to go have this procedure completed. But, um, basically they injected stem cells, right. That they took from him, uh, grew and programmed them I guess the way that they were supposed to be programmed and then reintroduce those stem cells into his lungs and um, I'm going to ask you to break down what I'm explaining when we get done because some of this stuff <laughs> may not be fitting into the proper terminology or, or, or flow but uh, I thought it was amazing because he only had about 40% uh, usage of his lungs like 40% of 100% capacity and um, after about mm-hmm. oh I don't know four or five months of injecting the stem cells and it was like an ongoing process he had to go back and have it done a couple different times throughout the the months, uh, but now his lung capacity is up to seventy percent from what Very it was. Nice. So it actually, yeah, it did been, the job. Yeah, and he um he now doesn't have to wear his oxygen mask all the time or, or his oxygen 
in unless uh, unless there's like some mitigating circumstances like he travels a little bit. So if he goes to Colorado and it's like a higher altitude with thinner air, then he needs to use the oxygen. But, you know, just that's my experience with the stem cell stuff. And kind of what's your question? Yeah. Well, that's my my question is how does how how does what what happened with my uncle fit into what Jeff's question was with the actual medical usage um, and maybe just tie that together. So the audience. Oh, yeah. uh, Right. I wanted to tell a story about something that I dealt with so we could have the audience kind of understand it from that perspective and, and, and maybe they could internalize it for them. Well, your story is a really interesting one. And <laughs> I think it illustrates kind of where the field is at in a way, you know, I started with talking about bone marrow transplantation, you know, that was, that was invented already 50, 60 years ago and is an established technique, but there aren't a lot of examples of other stem cell types of therapies that are established accepted medical therapies. Right. So for, for example, for, for your uncle, you know, you said that what he, the, the, the treatment he received, uh, which appears to have helped is actually illegal in Arizona, <laughs> right. right? So the doctors wouldn't perform it because they'd be afraid of, of, you know, having their licenses oh, revoked. So these are very interesting uh, situations that we're in right now where there are ideas out there there's some data out there suggesting that something might be helpful. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it hasn't been FDA approved as an actual therapy. And there's also other data suggesting that some of these stem cell therapies, uh, A, may not work at all, and B, may actually be dangerous for you. So all of that is the landscape that the patient now has to navigate and try to make a decision for themselves about how they're going to do something. And that's without even imposing, you know, the whole situation of how they're going to pay for the whole thing. <laughs> right. So, so this, is, this is where we're at in the field. And one stem cell is not the same as another. You know, if I were to say one thing about this, I would say, the term stem cell is sort of a catch-all. It includes anything from, you know, the very earliest cells in our body that create the entire human being all the way to, you know, really just uh, cells from the skin or fat that uh, can grow pretty normally outside of the body uh, from anybody at any time. So, you know, in the end of the day, we can't really predict yet which stem cell therapies are going to work and which aren't. And, you know, I think that it all depends on the individual and it depends on the reliability of the doctors who are performing the procedures. Yeah. Yeah. I could see like that. See, the way I look, at least the way I envision it is this, it's like, it's, it's working on an individual, you know, like working on my own stem cells to, you know, replace this like a futuristic thing. Like, okay, uh, it's 20 years earlier and I have my stem cells frozen or whatever, and they're doing work on them to grow new lungs or new heart or whatever. And that's stuff that would work on me, you know, 15, 20 years down the road or whatever. Uh, that's kind of the way I'm seeing this yeah, and, you, ma- and a- you make a good point too, because when uh, when my wife and I uh, had our daughter, you know, five years ago, one of the things I guess it's a thing is, you know, you get the stem cells from the placenta and you cryogenically mm-hmm. freeze those, so you have, you know, I guess uh, you know the the stem cells from the right. the actual you know moment of the creation, origin. right? The origin, I guess. Uh, and then, and then, you know, hopefully as the technology would, you know, improve over time and then you would have those stem cells saved in the event that you did need right. a, There's a process you, know, you needed your kidney or you need, yeah, yeah. Long, right. Yeah. Is that still a big just, thing? Just an idea. What do you think, doctor? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like both of you guys are talking about the idea of bets being placed essentially on some stem cell therapy developing sometime in the future. Right. So that is one way to think about it. If you're not desperate, right, you can think, okay, you know, is it worthwhile for me to try to bank something now just in case? 
Uh, it's kind of like a biological. It's like trying to freeze insurance. your body now, like because you have cancer or something, and there's no cure. So you're like, all right, I'm gonna freeze. <laughs> I'm gonna freeze myself, and then maybe in like a hundred years they'll have a cure for cancer, and they'll know how to bring frozen yeah. people back to life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, this is there's so many different possibilities, but I think that you know we have to still keep in mind that science is a journey, yeah. and nothing's going to happen overnight. And I think that anyone who sort of says that they have the cure for everything, you know, you should be very suspicious of. So, you know, in the, right. in the end of the day, the stem cell field is in a very exciting field, but it needs more work to really get to where it has to go and to deliver on what we know the potential is. Right. You know, we yeah. know there's potential. And, and, and the best way, I think, for our society, you know, if I can get on a little bit of a soapbox here, the best way for our society to really use this technology is to invest in the fundamental research and development tools and the science so that when we when we do get to 15 or 20 years from now, we're actually able to do something that we can't do today, you know, and, 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 and we have to really push our attention on it. We have to have good minds paying attention to it, thinking about it. We have to have infrastructure being built mm -hmm. within our existing medical system in order for, for that fantasy to turn into a reality. It's a lot of R&D. Yeah, a ton. You know, uh, as, as we kind of talk about a couple of these usages of, of stem cells and, you know, maybe some future applications, uh, our next guest on the show today is going to be a woman named Sophie Ward, who uh, she was a, a professional swimmer in, in Great Britain. Uh, she was getting ready to go to uh, the Olympics. So uh, the government of Great Britain had invited her and her family to the 2002 Olympics. Uh, no, 2008 Olympics in China. No, this was 2002. So was it was a two. Yeah. So it was 2002 That's in China. She was down there. And, uh, and so she went to China to go check out all this cool stuff for, you know, swim. She was like 14 at the time. And so then by the time the next Olympics was going to happen, she was going to, you know, uh, be at the age to be able to compete. And so they're like, all right, let's get her, you know, down there. Well, while she was was down there she got bit by a tick uh and and contracted lyme disease right which is a blood disease uh. and so one of my questions i might have you know in, in that case is how can stem cells help a person like sophie who you know has this terrible disease that's blood ridden and and is there is there is there future technologies along the lines of stem cells that would be able to help her yeah that's a that's a good question and you know i don't know exactly what her situation was, but it sounds like a pretty devastating example. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I truthfully don't know the answer to how we're going to cure Lyme disease. I think that for certain types of, um, for certain types of diseases where you had an infection and an impaired, a tissue of the body, we could envision using stem cells to replace or to repair that component. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, those stem cells may not need to be the most sophisticated, right? Because if, if it's an issue where it's a, it, it, it's a muscle or it's a connective tissue, the body already has stem cells in it that can try to repair the damage. Right. Um, you know, for other types of, of, of cells within the body, like, like neurons, for example, they're, they're much more sensitive and difficult to replace. And we'd have to find a special sort of stem cell and grow it from, from the patient in order to, to transplant it back in. You know, I, I think that a lot of the, the goal of the field is to, you know, ideally reverse the effects of injuries or damage to the body to the point where a person has the type of performance that they, that they had before, you know, it's the difference between the state of medicine now, which is we're going to manage your chronic disease, you know, to, but it's not a cure, right? We're, we're, we're managing the symptoms and we're, we're, we're helping you cope. Mm -hmm. Making you function. And we're slowing yeah. it. 
you know, to, 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 to yeah, but to, you know, where we want to go is to make it, to make it functional, to really have something that uh, can cure the disease sure. and can take you back to where you were uh, before you had any, any problem at all. Right. Right. So, uh, Dr. Friedman, where does one get more information on what you've been working up to or what you're working on just to get more information on stem cell uh, research from Dr. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Friedman? Well, I would I would recommend checking out our website. It's FriedmanLab.com. So Friedman is F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. And uh, we've got a variety of forms of information on the website, including links to, uh, you know, interviews like this one, webinars. Uh, there's some videos that you can watch that will actually show you what the stem cells look like that we work on and what the type of little mini kidneys look like, uh, and even a, a news segment there. Um, and uh, I will just put in a, a shameless plug <laughs> that we are trying constantly to raise funds for the laboratory. So there there's a go. donation page as well. And if anyone is interested in, in investing there. Never a shameless uh, you know, every, plug on finding your frequency. No way. You got, you got to get the public's help Absolutely. to fund some of that technology. I mean, go out there and, and, and if you're listening to the show, definitely donate because you may sure. want to use the stem cell technology at some point in the future. No we need about that it. capital to I've advance got myself it. <laughs> some kidney uh, issues, so I'm very interested in that. <laughs> yeah. All right, doctor, I'm sorry. Everything we do is nonprofit. You know, you the, the entire research enterprise at the academic level is a nonprofit enterprise, you know. And uh, what we're trying to do is just get things out there and, and make it to the next base so that society can benefit. Right. And what's that website uh, they can go to to make a donation or to help out? Um, it's uh, FriedmanLab.com slash donate. Excellent. Awesome. Well, Dr. Friedman, we really appreciate you being on the show today. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And the wonderfully enlightening conversation on stem cells was amazing. And, uh, you know, kudos to you and all the work that you're doing in the in the in the field. And like I said before, guys, go, uh, you know, and, and donate to the lab and, and help these guys uh, advance this technology. Dr. Friedman, thank you. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on, too. Thank you, Dr. Friedman been absolutely my pleasure guys, you guys you can check us out all over social media at radio ryan one at jeff spinney Two. check out the website finding frequency.net and coming up next we're going to have a, a guest sophie ward she's going to tell us a little bit about her story with lyme disease uh being a professional swimmer uh, and then moving through 10 years of dealing with lyme disease and how uh, she overcame that and she'll talk a little bit about the new book that she's got coming out so stay tuned we'll be right back right after these messages Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time here on voiceamerica.com have you friended us on facebook yet why not just go to facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for the keywords voice america once you are part of our facebook network you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows this week's featured guests and new happenings at the voice america talk radio network and you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline just go to facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for voice america 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. T-minus 37 seconds. Fight is growing. E equals MC. That all men are created about the future innovations. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Welcome to Finding Your Frequency. I'm your host, Jeff Spinard. I'm your co-host, Ryan Treasure. And we have a very special guest with us right now. This woman is 25 years old from Lancashire, Northwest England. Uh, she's been battling Lyme disease for over a decade, but just diagnosed in March of 2017. And this is after nine years of a declining health situation. She's an elite swimmer, and she competed for Lancashire, England, and Great Britain. An Olympic prospect and somebody that has a message for the disease of Lyme and other health scenarios. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to the show Sophie Ward. Sophie, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me today. Of course, of course. Thank now, you. you've, you're battling Lyme disease. Um, I am. Finding Your Frequency is all about the journey and you know, how you get to a position where you want to educate somebody or share something. Yeah. So take yeah. take us back. Let's get you back to before uh, you started getting health issues. Um, basically, I was obviously, like you said, an elite swimmer, and my dream was to compete at London 2012 program uh, and do the Olympics there and be a part of that. And um, I went out to China, to Beijing, when the 2008 Olympics was actually taking place. Excellent to sort of support my friends, watch them competing. And it was because obviously we traveled so far and me and my family sort of decided we'd do some sightseeing whilst we were in China. And that's when I sort of went to see the pandas and I came down with a fever, just thought it could have been the Chinese food because obviously it's very uh, different to what we have and what we're used to. Um, and I had two days worth of antibiotics, seemed to clear everything up, seemed fine, came home and it was only sort of four years later when I started getting sort of water infections, sore throats, food intolerances, joint pain, muscle weakness and my health just rapidly declined and I went to see loads of doctors, loads of consultants and nobody could really pinpoint what was the, the root cause of my symptoms uh, until I did um, a blood test that actually got sent off to Germany to Armin Labs and that came back positive for strains mm. of Brielia, which is um, Lyme disease. And that was that was, in, um, that was in 2008 or 9 when, when you finally got that diagnosis? So it was 2017 when I got the diagnosis, but it's actually 2008 when I went out to China and we pinpointed the fever from after seeing the pandas to when I was actually bitten because I've also got Coxsackie, which was like another co-infection. And China had an outbreak oh. of that Coxsackie virus wow. during the time that I was out there. So that's where we sort of pinpointed it all back to. So where, where does the Lyme disease come from? How does, how does one end up uh, getting that? So Lyme disease is a tick-borne disease. Um, it can also sort of stem from mosquitoes as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's always very, very important to like take prevention methods, like wear repellent, wear bright colored clothes, body check, and things like that. Especially that when you're going to see the pandas. Sort of protect and save lives, really. Yeah, do you think that that happened um, to you while you were in China? Uh, to be honest, I, I mean, I was only 14 at the time and it's so long ago. My mum did always make us wear repellent, but I was in a strappy top and, you know, sort of shorts because it was so humid and so hot 
and naturally when you do when it's like that you do sort of you don't really tend to wear sort of long sleeve right. uh, tops right. and trousers and all that jazz do you so you know you do you don't think about it at the time but thinking back you think oh i wish i'd have worn more clothes or yeah. Right. What, what was the other virus? You, you mentioned another virus or something um, that uh, is that something um, that you also came down with that that as well? Um, Coxsackie virus is also like in my system, um, and again, that's because ticks carry up to six co-infections. When you're sort of when you contract Lyme disease, you can also have different co-infections. And that's what makes everybody's symptoms very, very different and what, you know, sort of doesn't help doctors when it comes to a diagnosis because everyone doesn't really show the same symptoms. And for me, I didn't get the bullseye rash or any rash to show that I'd been bitten. So I just said, like, you know, I got a fever. I thought it was the food. Never thought anything of it. And then obviously when I, I did a sort of, a more in-depth blood test it showed up all you know of the strains of Lyme and also obviously Coxsackie virus and my consultant asked me you know were you ill in China and I just said well no I wasn't ill and I, I didn't have a bite but I did have a fever and then that's when he said to me you know this is when you sort of contracted it because your blood tests show that sort of you okay, know, so viruses that you picked up. Just so I have this home. right, um, the diagnosis was in March of 2017. Yes. Uh, and the story going back to the Olympics and being in China, the diagnosis, you guys are guessing that that's when it could have happened? Yes. Okay, yeah. so there's no real answer to when you you know get the disease but you're kind of thinking logical here as to where you could have got it yes okay. yeah exactly all right now now i'm on the same page i just want to make sure everybody's on the same <laughs> page. yeah it was important for our listeners to understand you know like what lyme disease is so they can kind of understand you know some of the prevention and awareness yes. components that i know yeah. you've been advocating to it um you have uh, been raising awareness in the media like the Daily Mail and BBC Breakfast and Sky News. You know, tell us a little yes. bit. Voice America. Yeah, and yeah, and right here at Voice America. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. So tell us a little um, bit about yes. what you're doing, you know, reaching out and working with the community to let people know about this, this issue that you're having. Yeah, so obviously, like we said, there's no sort of cure currently, unfortunately, and diagnosis is very difficult even though I went nine years being undiagnosed, so mm. many people go 30 plus years, wow. um, you know, battling with symptoms that their doctors can't sort of pinpoint the reasoning behind. Um, so that's why it's sort of critical to get the awareness out there, get education out there. Because like I was saying before, like simple prevention methods like wearing repellent and keeping on top of, you know, spraying every eight hours could actually protect and save lives and if people know that for a fever and sort of chills and migraines are other symptoms of Lyme disease they might be sort of well they might be able to arm themselves a bit more with more when they go to the doctor because 50% of people don't get the bullseye rash so if, if they've got a child that comes down with a fever or flu-like symptoms, they might just think that, you know, give them a few painkillers, rest, rest them in bed for a few days and they'll be fine. But they don't think about maybe they were rolling in grass or out climbing trees or anything like that where they could have been infected. So I think that's just, we don't want to scare people, of course, but it's just to give them a bit more awareness sure. and education around it. Sure. Because so, it, is a, it is a global issue. Yeah, right. Now, so you're living nine years and you've got headaches and fevers. What, what else yeah. does Lyme disease do to you? So it sort of tricks the body in the sense that, I, you know, I've got really bad food intolerances because it changes the DNA in the cells so that your body can't fight 
um, well, it starts to attack its own immune system, basically, right, and, right. and your your immune system just doesn't know what is sort of right and what is toxic to the body. Mm. So it just begins to attack everything. So a lot of people become intolerant to certain chemicals, foods, materials, because the body is just completely just so out of whack. Just haywire, right? And yeah, and the immune system is so suppressed that it just doesn't fight off any infections, and that's why it's really like we get ill really easily. Right. So, is this like something that you have to deal with, like you know, on a daily basis now? Like, what kind of you know treatment regimen have you been on, and you know, like how is your quality of life now that you've been diagnosed and you've started to kind of you know figure out what the problem is? How are you addressing that problem in an ongoing capacity? Um, so a lot of people do ongoing antibiotic treatments um, via infusions, um, which some, for some people it works, but for me, my body is too weak. So it, it just sends it into shock because I've got so many other infections as well as the Lyme that's really strong in my body. So I've had to go down the herbal route and I take herbal supplements that boost my immune system just so that I can try and fight off any infections that do come away so it's not you know causing because obviously at this point my body is so weak anything could just tip me over the edge so anything to sort of strengthen it is is really really vital and you know it's it's difficult because everyone reacts differently to different treatments so some people do like saunas where they sort of try and sweat out the toxins and they find that really useful um, but there's all sorts out there. And like I say, everyone's affected differently. So they take on many different treatment paths. But right. for me, the herbal treatment has been the bit, well, the one treatment that's sort of keeping my organs stable. I have blood tests every week that sort of look to my kidneys, my liver, everything like that to make sure that everything is kept stable. Because the minute that it probably dips, I'm probably going to have to think about another treatment plan and I'm not too sure which direction I'd go in at the minute because like I say I am lucky in the fact that I have kept everything stable for the last 12 months. What's a normal day look like for you? So it's very difficult in the morning because I have a lot of joint pain. I suffer a lot with migraines so I always feel like I've been knocked down by a bus and it, you just feel hungover, you just feel sick, you feel weak. So there's some days when I lie in bed and because of, I'm so stiff, my mum will have to pull me up out of bed. Um, I'm practically housebound, I can't drive. Oh, my mum supports me. Um, I, I do still manage to make and cook my own food, but it's it's not always easy. Sometimes we walk around the shop and I can do 20 minutes and then I'll be like so, so tired. If I go any longer than 20 minutes, I'll have to use a wheelchair. Mm. And it's just, it's just crazy. Right. I get tired so, so much easier. And like the symptoms that the pain is just unbearable. Mm. And you think from elite athlete doing 24 yeah. hours in the pool, three hours in the gym a week to not being able to walk around a supermarket for 20 minutes. Right, right. The it's just, health over the years. It's just, yeah, it's just crazy. It's crazy. And it's it's so hard to get your head around. When when did it with. start to get really bad for you? Um, when I was about eighteen, so back in twenty yeah, twenty twelve really, because I'd retired from swimming in twenty ten because I couldn't carry on. My health began declining slowly and I just I couldn't keep up. My body mm. wasn't bouncing back the same. And then sort of twenty twelve was when I really, really sort of hit rock bottom with it all. The migraines were getting worse. My food intolerances were getting worse. And my weight just dropped because I'd had to cut so much out of my diet because of the food intolerances. And my joint pain was getting worse. My mobility was getting worse. And yeah, and it, it, it was just a nightmare. And the doctors were just saying that I was depressed or that I was crazy. And I was having to come to terms with obviously retiring from the sport I loved and that was the right. career that, you know, I'd worked towards and my whole life I'd worked towards that career 
I just felt lost. My body was failing me and I just didn't know what was going on. And you're and like, what, 18 years old now? Um, I'm 25 now. No, no I know. I mean, 18. when it started really but, getting bad, when yeah, you had to but, call it quits. Yeah, 18, 18, which was very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, because we got to go and get of, going. Well, yeah, that's when you're sort of starting out in the world. Right. Um, and I just felt completely lost and I felt like I'd lost myself, my body, and my career. And I just I had no answers, which was also very difficult because it wasn't even like right. I you could begin You have no idea what's going on it. with you, right? Well, it's brutal. Yeah. It's a brutal disease. It really, really gets you, gets you hard. It really does, yeah. Huh. So as you're kind of dealing with, you know, all of these trials and tribulations throughout that time with your Lyme disease, uh, that's that's what obviously where you found your frequency and said, hey, I'm going to document, you know, my uh, you know, my, How my, do I my travels with positive. this, right. Turning it into something positive. Yes. And, and then, so you wrote a book, right. In the limelight, uh, Sophie's story. Tell us a little yes. bit about the book. Um, so basically I, I had a few dark, dark years where I isolated myself from my family and my friends because I didn't know what was wrong with me. Doctors were calling me crazy and I didn't really know what to do. And, at first I wrote a diary and then I thought no I'll start blogging and you know seeing if anybody else out there can find comfort in reading what I'm going through and maybe they'll be able to relate and I'll be able to relate with them and I can right. meet friends and think that I'm not crazy yeah. and from the feedback from my blog um, it sort of grew and people find it really really helpful and then when I did finally get um you know my diagnosis and my family all sort of started supporting me my friends started supporting me and I started to rebuild my life and with their help and guidance I've, I started finding my voice a bit more and learning new skills and like sort of so, just getting out there a bit more so let's let's keep I, I want to keep the age as this is progressing you know you're in a dark place uh you know yeah you don't want to hear it anymore don't even want to see anybody uh, you start writing your blog. What are you, yeah. 19, 20 at the time? When does this happen? Yeah, so so I started my blog when I was 21. Um, and that, that was difficult because I'd had my 21st birthday. Yeah. I'd moved into my own house. And that my house was kind of my security blanket because on the outside, towards everybody, I looked like I was doing okay and sure. I wanted everybody thinking that I was doing okay. Mm -hmm. But on the inside, I was really, really struggling to cope. Right. And it was a place where I could hide away and my family and my friends didn't have to see me going through all the symptoms um, that I was going through, basically. Um, and yeah, I started blogging when I was 21 and then I was diagnosed when I was 23. Mm -hmm. And now, how, how the attention you were getting from the blog, um, what kind yes. of what kind of feedback were you getting there? You know, did you have you know thousands of people uh, active, hundreds of thousands of people? How was the, the um, blog working for you? There, there was just like a sort of a connect group of a couple of hundred that would read regularly yep. and just say they were battling with chronic illnesses, invisible illnesses. Um, and they felt like they were crazy. They were having doctors and GPs telling them that they're crazy. They didn't have the support right. of their family. They were wanting to commit suicide. They 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 felt alone. They so didn't you, have any friends. So you they created, couldn't go out. Right. So you created this group, basically. And this is what kind of broke, broke you out of your funk? or Yeah. So I kind of realized that they they were sort of benefiting from what I was writing sure. and I felt better because I wasn't bottling all my feelings exactly. up but at the same time it was kind of like it gave me a purpose because other people needed what I wrote right. um, so that sort of helped build my confidence back up and sort of felt from a failure and like I had no purpose to actually mm -hmm. having a purpose and some self worth and then that sort of when I started working with Lyme Disease UK is one of the admin and I started blogging for them. And then from then, um, sort of 
we we had a lot of media coverage and the BBC came to me Sky obviously came to me and then is this before as, the book or know, is the book going out by it now it sort of snowballed yeah and and people were sort of I got emotional on, on screen and things and they were like oh my gosh this is how I feel and I thought well they see me on screen and think oh I can't raise awareness like this and I can't do this and I can't do that and I wanted them like I wanted to be proof that you can do it you can still like sure. chase your dreams just you can still create a life even when you're battling chronic illness and chronic diseases it's not a brick wall you can sort of work around it sure. it's not a life that we ever planned or one that we'd wish upon anybody and um, but neither should we sit in a dark room and not do anything right right oh so it was it was a long process but i wanted to share from going from rock bottom the story of built building it all the way back up absolutely and sort of creating creating something out of a bad circumstance right. really what kind of advice do you have uh, for somebody who's you know going through something similar that you've gone through you know what uh what kind of words of encouragement would you give them i think having a strong support network is key but also i would recommend not doing what i did and that is like isolating yourself right put like putting a front on and lying to your friends and family that you are okay because if you tell them that you're okay and you've got a smile on your face and that they're not going to question it right and you have to you have to be open with them for them to understand or begin to understand and and therefore support you so that would be my like the top advice is just to be open and honest with your support system Excellent. and then um also try not to be negative and always seek positives there's always a positive there's always a silver lining on the cloud right and nobody's life goes to plan even we can get through like a b c d and e like sometimes we have to work our way through to sure. find our path and we've just got to keep hope and faith and not give up because you know the sun does always have to rise and you know storms always pass and right. we just have to learn to dance in the rain and just keep <laughs> keep hope absolutely you're absolutely an inspiration sophie what's next w where do you go from here um well hopefully hopefully if the book's a success maybe i'll be able to write another one and carry on raising awareness um I've got a few sort of radio interviews in the coming weeks and I co-present for my local radio. So I love doing that. I'd hope to do more of that as well. We've well, got a few we'll fundraisers that, that we're doing. Yeah, I've got a few fundraisers coming up as well, which is great. And I'm hoping to do a charity calendar with a lot of my friends and family, which will be great to, again, raise money. And... Um, yeah, so it's, it's just great to actually have friends and family involved as for well sure, and sure. raise awareness because, again, it just, I don't know, it just it just brings back to everybody who is also suffering that they aren't alone and if they see me have support, they might be more open to being more open with their sort of friends and family as well and not be embarrassed about being open. Right. Right. So is there a, a website you want to send people to or what do you want to get out there that people can get a hold of you or help you in your journey here? So I run my own blog, so it's so fa so fantastic. Um, so they can hit me up there and leave me an email there. But also if they're looking for any sort of an advice for like the UK side, we have Lyme Disease UK dot com which obviously has all of our information what's going on in the Lyme world in the UK and I know that over in America you guys have the Lyme Alliance as well yeah. which have a great website for also like tips and hints and prevention methods raising awareness treatment and um, Lyme doctors as well so that's that's a great website to use excellent Excellent. And we'll have to talk about uh, the possibility of 
uh, Sophie Ward doing a show on Voice America. <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Sophie, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. You guys, the book is dropping on February 12th. Uh, in the limelight Sophie's story the journey of acceptance and rediscovery make sure you go pick up a copy find out about this most inspirational story and how you can keep on fighting keep on grinding keep on going and I love what you said dancing in the rain uh, you know that's that's amazing Sophie thanks for being on Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. You guys, thanks for tuning in to Finding Your Frequency. Check us out on Fridays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Of course, check out the website, findingyourfrequency.net. Jeff and I are all over social media, at Jeff Spinney 2, at Radio Ryan 1. And of course, uh, Jeff Spinard, Ryan Treasure, Finding Your Frequency. We'll be back with you next week.